6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 20 through 23. Well, while we're having this party, unknown to them, Ugbaru, the Persian general, had sent one division upriver to dam the Euphrates, divert it into the canal system, which they had controlled by then, lowered the, the moat, and they went in under the city and took the city without a battle. We'll get into that at later, so I don't want to spend too much time on now. But it's in that spirit, you see, Isaiah might be being very sarcastic here, saying, Prepare the table, watch in the watchtower, eat, drink, arise, ye princes, anoint the shield. In other words, if you put a sarcastic tone to this, it fits what was happening as detailed in Daniel 5. We'll unravel that a little later in Isaiah anyway, so I don't want to double up. We'll just keep moving here. Verse 7 does have a translational problem. It says, He saw a chariot with a couple of horsemen, a chariot of asses and a chariot of camels, and he hearkened diligently with much heed. It turns out that's an unfortunate, clumsy handling of some messy Hebrew, and what it really says is simply, there's a troop coming two by two. Double column. And you can't tell that from the English because of the way the Hebrew has been rendered. If you have a good commentary or good notes, it probably will comment on that. Not a big deal, but just as, a, as an aside. Now, verse 8, And he cried as a lion, My Lord, I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime, and I am set at my post whole nights. And uh, this allusion to the lion, your first thought, Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Not exactly. The lion here more appropriately might be viewed as the lion of uh, Daniel chapter 7. Something else we'll study shortly uh, will be the famous visions of Daniel, Daniel 2 and 7. Basic stuff, should be up to speed on that. But in Daniel 7, God gives Daniel an overview of all Gentile history in the form of a series of beasts that appear to rise out of the sea. And the first one is a lion-like. It's a lion with wings, but it's a lion-like thing. It refers to Babylon. And so the idiom here of that lion, strangely enough, by the Holy Spirit, would link more to the lion of Daniel 5. But what makes that provocative, Daniel wasn't alive yet. So Isaiah's use of idiom ties to Daniel only by the Holy Spirit. Follow me? But we'll move on. My Lord, I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime, and I am set my post the whole nights. And behold, here cometh a chariot of men and a couple of horsemen. And he answered and said, get this, friends. Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and all the carved images of her gods he hath broken unto the ground. Now see, here Babylon is named. I've inferred that from verse 1 by looking ahead, but the whole thing does refer to Babylon. But lest there be any doubt that we're allegorizing or something, verse 9 nails it, Babylon. But the thing that's interesting, if you're a student of Jeremiah and Revelation 18, you remember this strange phrase the angel uses. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. What a strange way to say things. You'll see it here, you see it in Jeremiah, see it in Isaiah 18. I mean, in Revelation 18. Babylon is fallen, has fallen. Great, but the next phrase, if you're sharp, creates a problem. 
Babylon has fallen, has fallen, and all the carved images of her gods he hath broken unto the ground. Let me give you a technicality that's very important to you. When Cyrus the Persian conquered Babylon, he did not destroy her idols. He worshipped at them. It was his style when he conquered a people was to honor their temples. That was just his way. Nebuchadnezzar did differently. When he conquered a people, he took their religious artifacts home as trophies for his museum. Okay? And he transported the key people to break down their will. That's why he took the best, uh, you know, Daniel's three friends hostage and so forth. Point is, Cyrus played the game differently. It's obviously much later, you know, over a hundred years later. Cyrus's approach when he conquered a people was at least ceremonially to honor their temple, to go there and do homage and to worship their... It was his way of showing honor to his vanquished people. Just his way, his style. The records show that in Babylon, Cyrus did that very thing. The residents of Babylon, for like two or three days, didn't even know the place was taken over. Because that night, they slipped under the gate, they took over without a battle. If you go to the London Museum and see the Steel of Cyrus, you'll discover what it brags. Cyrus could brag that he conquered Babylon without a battle. He makes Babylon his headquarters. When he, 200 years later, gets conquered by Alexander the Great, Alexander the Great makes Babylon the headquarters. So that raises an important issue that scholars in general have missed. It's important for you as students of the Bible to be sensitive to a technicality. Don't confuse the destruction of Babylon with the fall of Babylon. Babylon became a huge empire and fell to the Persians in 539 B.C. No problem. But it was not destroyed. It served as a capital to the Persians. When the, they get conquered by the Greeks, it served as a capital for Alexander the Great. In fact, Alexander the Great died in Babylon. Subsequently, over the years, it atrophied and fell into ruin. But it was never destroyed like the Bible says. And I've told you this before, but just to refresh your memory, or if you're new, you may want to do this. I want to mention three pairs of chapters, six chapters. I want you to write these down if you haven't done this. Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 50 and 51, and Revelation 17 and 18. Those are six chapters, but in three pairs. What I challenge you to do is block out an hour when you won't be interrupted. Take you less than an hour, but I'm just being figurative. Block out some time and read those six chapters at one sitting. Don't break it down. At one sitting, just read on th through Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 15 and 51, and they're in Revelation 17 18. And recognize the following. It's talking literal Babylon. It's a river on the Euphrates. It's the pride of the Chaldeans' excellency. We're not talking about allegories here. We're not talking about an allegory of Rome exactly. That's a more complicated question. We'll take it another time. Point is, Babylon is going to be a major world power when Christ comes to judge the earth. The destruction that Isaiah talks about, the destruction that Jeremiah talks about, and the destruction John talks about is clearly the same city. You'll see that if you read all six chapters of one city. You'll see the idioms and the various expressions all tie together. What that means is, is that Babylon, yes, it withered away in the past, but it's not, it has not been destroyed like Isaiah and Jeremiah predicted. They predicted it would be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah, and once destroyed, never again inhabited. 
Why am I making a thing of this? Because Saddam Hussein has spent 20 years rebuilding Babylon. And one of the dramatic biblical events of our time is that Babylon is reemerging. The action to watch on CNN is not Baghdad, it's 62 miles to the south. The media won't understand it as a few ceremonial buildings, but they are being rebuilt, have been rebuilt, they're used for special occasions, but according to God's word, it, Babylon, maybe not under Saddam Hussein, who knows, is going to reemerge as a major world power politically, ecclesiastically, and economically. How can that be? Put 80% of the world's oil reserves in a thousand miles radius, and you think, well, maybe, you know. Okay, that's a whole other study, but the point is be sensitive to that. And here Isaiah, before Babylon existed as an empire, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, and all of the carved images of her gods he hath broken to the ground. Cyrus did not do that when it fell. So watch on. Verse 10, O my thrashing and the grain of my floor, that which I have heard of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have I declared unto you. Now on this particular verse, I'm going to take you way out in left field. Those of you that are mystics like I am and watch for subtleties of language may be aware of the fact that the concept of thrashing is also used allegorically or metaphorically or idiomatically of the tribulation. And it's interesting that, O oh, my thrashing in the grain of the floor, which I have heard of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have I declared unto you. Notice it's, it's adjacent to the Babylonian remark in the previous verse. To the extent that you perceive the thrashing floor idiom as being in the tribulation, I call your attention to the book of Ruth in chapter 3. If the kinsman regime or Boaz is our Goel, a type of Christ, if Naomi is a type of Israel through which through his redemptive act she gets returned to her land, and if Ruth, the Gentile bride of Boaz, is a type of the church, it's interesting to notice that during the thrashing floor scene, Ruth is where? At the feet of Boaz. Now if you're pre-trib and into this, that's kind of fun. If you're not into that, don't worry about it and don't make doctrine of it. It's just an observation. Okay, that should keep the letters down. Okay. <laughs> Verse 11, moving right along. The burden of Duma. Now here again, Isaiah is using this phrase, the burden, or masa. Or he we use the same expression today. It's heavy, right? That's what burden means. Duma is a play on words. The way it's phrased is dumb, but it's a reversal of letters referring to Edom. But in any case, uh, and we know that from what follows, he says, He calleth to me out of Seir, which is a place in Edom. Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? And the watchman said, The morning cometh, and also the night. If ye will inquire, inquire, return, come. I have no idea what that means. I do not know enough of the structure to know if, if there's a sarcasm or a hidden ellipse in this. It may be. I don't know. It seems a little strange. It's sort of like the guy said, what's the biggest problem, ignorance or apathy? The guy says, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> Verse 13, the burden upon Arabia. In the force of Arabia shall ye lodge, O ye traveling companies of Dedanum. Now, the Arabian tribes include Dedan, Tima, and Kedar. We're going to talk about those. Those are Arabian tribes. Kedar shows up in Genesis 25, 13. We'll encounter them shortly. The Dedanites are mentioned in uh, Jeremiah 49, for those of you who want to track that down. The Dedanites were chief traders in the, in the Arabian Peninsula. And I won't get into all that. Let's just keep moving up. 
Verse 14, the inhabitants of the land of Tema brought water to him that was thirsty. They met with their bread, him that fled. They fled from the swords and the drawn sword and from the bent bow and from the grievousness of war. For thus hath the Lord said unto me, and by the way, all these are obviously Arabian tribes, but here's an interesting one. Within a year, according to the years of a hireling, and all the glory of Kedar shall fail. And the residue of the number of the archers, the mighty men of the children of Kedar, shall be diminished, for the Lord God of Israel hath spoken it. There's an expression you'll encounter occasionally in Isaiah, which says, said unto me, like, within a year according to the years of a hireling. And you wonder, what does that mean? What he's saying, in effect, that's an expression meaning as if it were a contract. If you're a hireling under contract, and it says you're going to serve for 36 months... Well, number one, you're not going to serve less, right? And you're not going to serve more. Follow me? So it's an idiom that familiar to Isaiah's readers, meaning it's specifically that long. Like a contract is what he's saying. In our vernacular, we say it's like a contract period. So he's saying within a year, according to the years of hiring. In other words, no more, no less, exactly. We could talk a little bit more about Kedar, because we're going to encounter it from time to time. But all the glory of Kedar shall fail. What on earth does that mean? Well, to really peel behind this label, again, you'll be rewarded if you do your homework, although here the homework gets a little heavier, because you've got to find out that Kedar was the second son of Ishmael. Okay? And this, there's a whole not, bunch of other questions it raises to what's in Arab, and I won't get into all that right now. But the point is, certainly, as a son of Ishmael, Ishmael was the son of Abraham from Hagar, the Egyptian handmaid of uh, Sarah. Ishmael had 12 sons. The second son was Kedar. Kedar settles in the northeastern corner of the Arabian Peninsula in an area that you and I would generally associate with a place called Kuwait. Kedar is the tribe that Saddam Hussein ascribes his origin to. Kedar is also the tribe which brought you in the 6th century, 7th century, a guy by the name of Muhammad. So in a sense, it's a way of alluding to Islam. Enough said, let's move on. The glory of Kedar shall fail. The residue of the number of archers, the mighty men of the children of Kedar, shall be diminished, for the Lord God of Israel hath spoken it. Okay. Chapter 22, moving right along. The burden of the valley of vision. Now we're talking about Jerusalem. These are idioms may not be familiar to you, but they're Jerusalem. What aileth thee now that thou art wholly gone up to the housetops? Thou that art full of shoutings, a tumultuous city, a joyous city. Thy slain men are not slain with a sword nor dead in battle. This is implying a siege. You and I have no concept of what a siege is. We, we have some concept of war because we see it in our entertainments and things. You know, I mean, we, we can imagine ancient warfare because we see the, the action. We can visualize archers and all. What you and I generally have no real perception of what the real weapon of war in ancient cultures was, and that's called a siege. And that's where they would seal off the city and starve it out. When the Roman army, when you woke up one morning and looked out the city, out of the wall, and you saw the Roman army encamp around you, you knew, if you'd done your homework, that their style was to build a fence and an army around a city and be prepared to sit there for 25 years, if necessary. One of the most interesting things, if you're a student of military history, is to read the Roman campaigns in Europe. Absolutely awesome. What we would call today military engineering. 
Same thing here. Now, this, of course, is a lot earlier period, but the point of the concept of a siege implied not necessarily mounting the wall and fighting. The concept of a siege was to seal it off and starve it out. Sure, they had reserves. How much? A month? Two months? Not a problem. No one went in, no one went out. And people would ultimately become cannibals. Stories of the mothers eating their children. If you read Josephus and others of the writers, of the ancient historians, you get a whole different perspective of what the word siege, the terror that would strike in the hearts of people. Anyway, thy slain men are not slain with sword or dead in battle. See, the overtone there is a siege. All thy rulers are fled together. They are bound by the archers. All that, all that are found in thee are bound together who have fled from afar. Therefore, said I, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Labor not to comfort me because of the spoiling of the daughter of my people. This corresponds with Second Kings 18 for those of you that want to parallel Isaiah's prophecies with the, the historical record. But moving on. For it is a day of trouble and of treading down, of perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and of crying to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with the chariots of men and horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield, and it shall come to pass that the choicest valley shall be full of chariots, and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. And he stripped the covering of Judah, and thou didst look in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. Ye have seen also the breaches of the city of David, that they are many. Ye gathered together the waters of the lower pool. What Isaiah is talking about here, he's talking to the king, King Hezekiah, in anticipation of this siege. He's not caught by surprise, he knows the Assyrians are coming. He did what you would do as a diligent king. He repaired the walls. There's places there are breaches, they fixed them. He had another problem. The water supply came from the Gihon Spring. The Gihon Spring is near the, the Kidron Valley. If you remember when we did the briefing with the topo, topo map not so long ago, that the, the city of David is on a rise, part of the ridge system that we call Mount Moriah, and to the east is Mount of Olives, to the west is Mount Zion. But the development we're talking about in these days was essentially the city of David, okay, in that area, maybe, maybe starting to move up the little valley called Teropian Valley, up a little to the west of Mount Zion. They had a wall around that. The problem was, is that the source of water was outside the wall. So Hezekiah commissions an interesting venture. He commissions two groups of diggers. Some started from the Gihon Spring, and some started from what later becomes the Pool of Siloam. And they start digging. And if you look at a topo map, it's a bizarre pattern. We assume, I, I assume they were following a fault of some kind because it wasn't direct. It was a 1,750-foot-long tunnel. It's about six, seven feet high and about that wide. And it's typically three, about three feet full of water. And when you visit Israel today, you can get shorts and some sandals and go through Hezekiah's tunnel. You start at the Gihon Spring and... With candles or flashlights, you go through this tunnel. It's kind of fun. And when you end up, you emerge out of the, the, the pool of Siloam, which is inside the wall. So what Hezekiah did, he set up that tunnel, which fed the city with water. They camouflaged the spring itself. And that was his way of preparing. Uh, but you see, he says, you, speaking to uh, the king, Isaiah says, Ye have seen the, also the breaches of the city of David, that they are many. Ye gathered together the waters of the lower pool, pool of Siloam, Ye have numbered the houses of Jerusalem, and the houses ye have broken down to fortify the wall. In other words, they tore down houses to fix the wall, to prepare for the siege. Ye have also made a ditch between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But ye have not 
looked unto its maker. In other words, you dealt with a pool, but you didn't deal with the maker of the pool. In other words, the God of Israel. See, in other words, uh, you have you've made a ditch for two walls of the water of the old pool, but you have not looked unto the, its maker, neither had respect unto him that fashioned it long ago. In that day did the Lord God of hosts call to weeping and to mourning and to baldness and to girding with sackcloth. Baldness here means shave the head. It was prohibited to the priests. And behold, joy and gladness, slaying oxen, killing sheep, eating flesh and drinking water. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. Isaiah, of course, is being sarcastic or elliptical here. Interesting, eat, drink, marry, tomorrow we die. So you thought that was from Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. Wrong, he borrowed it from Isaiah. Okay? Verse 14, it was revealed in mine ears that by the Lord of hosts, surely this iniquity shall not be purged from you until you die, saith the Lord God of hosts. And for those you want to study, you can look at Isaiah 36 and 37 here. We're going to get into that. That's, that'll deal with this in more of a historical uh, sense. Now we have at the end of this chapter a strange passage. Uh, we have a little light on it, but still it'll leave some questions. There's a guy by the name of Shebna that's going to get replaced by a guy by the name of Eliakim. On one hand, Shebna is an egocentric treasurer who's going to be replaced by Eliakim. So there's a local, immediate understanding of this passage. The trouble is, as you study the passage more closely, it raises some questions which uh, have some difficult answers. So let's move on uh, and take a look at it. Verse 15, Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, Go, get thee unto this treasurer. And the way this treasurer is mentioned implies criticism. You don't see it in English necessarily, but it's contemptuous in its, its structure. Unto this treasurer, even unto Shebna, who is over the house, and say... What hast thou here? And whom hast thou here that thou hast hewn thee out a sepulcher here? As he that heweth out a sepulcher on high, and that carveth a habitation for himself in a rock. The tone here is that Shebna is guilty of having set himself up a sepulcher above his station. In other words, he's apparently on some kind of ego trip. And he's going to get his due here. Verse 17, Behold, the Lord will carry thee away with a mighty captivity and will surely cover thee. In other words, the Lord's going to take care of you, guy. You don't need a sepulcher here. You're going in captivity, in effect. He will surely violently turn and toss thee like a ball into a large country. There thou shalt die, and there the chariots of thy glory shall be the shame of the Lord's house. And I will drive thee from thy station and from thy state, and from thy state shall he pull thee down. Okay, so Shebna is getting his, but let's go on. Verse 20, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. And I will clothe him with thy robe, strengthen him with thy girdle, and will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So far, so good. We don't have any problem with that so far. Okay, Shebna blew it. He's out. This other guy apparently is going to be in. No problem so far until we get to verse 22. And the key of the house of David will I lay on his shoulder, and he shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. Huh? What's that mean? The reason that may strike familiar to you, if you're a student of the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 7, you'll recognize that verse, as it stands, appears... In the letter dictated by Jesus Christ. How many epistles in the New Testament? Most people say 21. 14 plus 7. Aha, uh -huh, but we always overlook 7. 7 that Jesus Christ wrote. 
Paul wrote 14 if you count Hebrews. There's seven so-called general epistles, right? There's seven by Jesus Christ Himself. Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And this verse is an allusion to Jesus Christ. So you can link that to Revelation chapter 3 verse 7. I'll point out here only this much to let you notice that there's integrity of design. These allusions by Isaiah are not incidental, are very key to your understanding the seven letter seven churches in, in, in this particular example. Now, the next few verses also are prophetic with an idiom that may be foreign to your ears. We have all kinds of idioms that speak of the Messiah. And there's, you know, wonderful counselor, all these labels. There's one. Have you ever heard Jesus referred to as a nail? I don't talk about the nails of the cross, something else here, sort of. And yet there's a very strange passage here. Verse 23. And I will fasten him like a nail in a sure place. And by the way, the word nail is also going to mean peg. In Zechariah 10.4 and Ezra 9.8, the word can mean prince. But here it's used as a nail or a peg on a pole. Okay. I will fasten him like a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. Ah, what's that about? Let's move on. Verse 24. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and issue, all the vessels in small quantity, from the vessels of the cups, even to the vessels of flagons. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed and be cut down and fall. And the burden that was upon it shall be cut off, for the Lord hath spoken it. Now, if you're just reading that through Isaiah, say, gee, what's that all about? And yet, if you pause a little bit, and you're willing to recognize a rather strange idiom being used, it's a hint, a veiled hint of whom? Jesus Christ. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.